I'd like to invite your attention to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and specifically verses 46 through 56, where Luke writes, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. <clears throat> Father, I pray now that you would give us understanding through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of your word. And Father, this passage is and unabashedly so all about you. And Father, as tempting as it may be for some to make it all about Mary, it's not about Mary. And Mary would not want it to be all about her. Her very words prove that. So I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to focus totally on you this morning, Father, and what you have done, who you are, your great character, your strength, your holiness, your faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would help us all to concentrate this morning and focus on the most important thing this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> now, as I've said for the past couple of weeks, the Bible is the written record of God's activity among his creation to fulfill his eternal plan and purposes. And we've learned that God doesn't always work the when and the how according to our preferences. Just take the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth. God waited until they were in their golden years to give them their first child. And as I was preparing this week, I just kept thinking of Zechariah and Elizabeth wrangling a toddler in their 60s. Now, Sherry and I, we love to have the grandbabies over, but we always have this comforting thought in the back of their minds they have parents to go home to. <laughs> right? But not so with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then there's Mary. The angel Gabriel told her that she was going to have a child before her marriage to Joseph was even consummated. And we can scarcely imagine what her life must have been like from that point forward. And likewise, God chooses to work in us and through us in his own time and in his own way. Now, I think it would be beneficial for us to pause and to ask this important question. When God is at work in our lives, do you ever stop and ask yourself, 
How should I respond to God's activity in my life? Should we simply react emotionally or should we thoughtfully respond? How should we respond to the working of God in us and through us when, frankly, if we were in charge, there would be multiple times when we would have worked in a completely different way? Well, I think there are at least two possible options that are available to us, two possible options for us to respond. One response would be the wrong response, a, a sinful response. That would be to complain about what God is doing. Now, we know the Bible teaches us that God works all things together for good, yet, despite being armed with that knowledge, how quickly we complain about His activity in our lives. And if we, at those times when we are tempted to complain, we should, must remind ourselves that God's working in us is an expression of His grace. He is under no obligation to us. Therefore, be thankful that God is even at work, even if it's inconvenient, painful, and as it oftentimes is, uncomfortable. Well, maybe we don't openly complain, but we openly question. To question God in our unbelief is to usurp God's authority and to deny God's sovereignty. We question God's timing, which is the same as questioning His wisdom. And in doing so, we call God's character into question. So that's one possible response that we can have as a Christian, but we, I think, would also just as quickly agree it should never be the response of us as Christians. So then we have a second response, and that is the response that we see in the life of Mary. That's the response that Mary models for us. So her response should be our response. And what was her response? She could not contain her words of praise. She was so completely overcome by the gracious activity of God in her life that she composes one of the most magnificent songs of praise to be found in all of Scripture. Now, you are intelligent people. I have no doubt about that. So let's think this through. From a purely human standpoint, if anyone was ever going to complain about the how and the when of God's activity in someone's life, wouldn't it have been Mary? But there's no hint in Scripture that she ever questioned what God was doing or that she complained about what God was doing. In fact, it's just the opposite. She responded with words of heartfelt praise and worship. So the text that we have before us this morning, verses 46 through 55, is commonly referred to as Mary's Magnificat. In case you're uh, curious, that word Magnificat is Latin for magnify. That's all it means. And that's what Mary does in her song of praise. She magnifies God. God is her focus. 
She does not focus on herself, nor does she focus on the child that she is going to give birth to. I find that very striking. Her focus is on the activity of God in the present, in her life, the activity of God in the past, in the life of Abraham and the nation of Israel, and the activity of God in the future. You know, frequently when we pray, we thank God for what He has done for us through Christ. And it is right and proper to pray that way because He has done marvelous things, great things, incomparable things for us through Christ. But there are other times when we should follow the example of Mary and just focus on God Himself. Just praise God for being God. We should take the focus sometimes even off what He has done for us and say, even if you had never done this for us, you're still worthy of our praise. Do we have that view of God? There are times when we should take the focus off His activity in our own lives and just focus on His majesty, focus on His splendor, focus on His strength. My pastor used to pray and thank God for being God. You know what? That's a good way to pray. And many times we develop these patterns in our prayer lives and we're really not even aware that we have fallen into these patterns. And because we're not aware of these patterns, we can't seem to break away from them, break out of them. We can't even seem to break out of them even on a temporary basis. So as we talked a little bit about in our prayer meeting this morning, you know what ends up happening? We pray on autopilot. We pray by rote. I don't know that I would want to do this myself, but it might be an interesting experiment to tape your prayers for five consecutive days and see just how similar they are to each other. Do you say the same thing the same way? I'm not saying that you can't do some of that, but we want to be careful about falling into that mindset where we can pray without thinking. We need to engage our minds so that we don't pray on autopilot. So one way I think that we could do that is by taking Mary's words of praise here, read through them, meditate on them, meditate on both how she says and what she says, and then begin to, to incorporate, excuse me, not only some of her words, but the focus that she has in your own times of prayer. Now, in case you're wondering, Mary is not the only mother in Scripture to pray to praise God for giving her a child. In fact, in Mary's prayer, we hear echoes of another mother's prayer by the name of Hannah. If you want to go back and read 2 Samuel 2, you will see there are some real similarities between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer. What's the point? Well, the point is here, Mary knew her Bible and that went into her praying. If you want to improve your prayer life, if you want to have a, perhaps a more meaningful prayer life, if you want some jet fuel for your prayer life, as it were, incorporate Scripture. Know Scripture. Pray the Scriptures. The similarities between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer demonstrates that Mary knew her Bible. She prayed Scripture. I almost uh, titled this message this morning, A Christmas Portrait, because 
what I see here is Mary paints this wonderful portrait, not only of, uh, of who God is, but what God has done. And you think about it, Mary was a young girl who probably had very little education. And we have to ask ourselves, how could she write such a magnificent song of praise? As you might imagine, there are plenty of critics out there who say there's no way that Mary wrote this. Maybe Luke just embellished the story and he polished it up. No, we have no hint of that. And Luke gives no hint of another author. Luke was a historian. He was interested and concerned in accuracy to make sure that he got the story right. So he gives no indication that anyone but Mary was responsible for her words. So we have to ask ourselves, how could she have done this? Very simply, she knew her Bible. She knew her Bible. She knew the scriptures. From an early age, she had been taught the scriptures. Her mom and dad, her mom and dad taught her from an early age to taught her the scriptures. And I would say to the, the parents of young children here, never underestimate your child's ability to learn the scriptures even at a young age. This is what kind of tickles me. Our kids are always geniuses until we say, we might suggest have them sit in church. Oh no, that's way above them. They, 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 could, never, they could never grasp that. Are you kidding? My grandkids know smartphones better than I do. Right? Let, let's not underestimate our children's ability to learn. Her parents taught her the scriptures, and perhaps as they taught her the scriptures, they turned that scripture into songs to help her learn. So her parents, maybe her grandparents, studied the scriptures with her, and they sung the scriptures with, with her. You know, one thing that I've noticed about my grandbabies, they love to sing. They love to sing. And the speed at which they pick up the words of the song are absolutely amazing to me. And you know what? I know most of the theme songs to the shows that they watch now. <laughs> Puppy Dog Pals, I can sing it. Paw Patrol, I can sing it. Blaze and the Monster Machines, I can really sing that one. Bob the Builder, can we build it? Yes, we can. Now, why do I know those songs? Because I've heard them over and over and over again. Mary knew her Bible. How? Because she was taught the scriptures over and over and over again. And her knowledge of the scriptures fueled her meditation and led her to praise God as he ought to be praised. So I say again, if you want to improve your prayer life, improve your knowledge of the scriptures. Use scripture to fuel your prayer. Now, if you study Mary's words carefully, you will see that she either quotes from or alludes to verses in Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And some of us are saying, I didn't even know Habakkuk and Zephaniah were in there. But yes, yeah, she knew that. So Mary knew her Bible. So there's really two parts of Mary's uh, prayer of praise here. First one is she acknowledges that God exalts the humble. Then second, she acknowledges that God humbles the proud. So let's start with the 
the first part, Mary begins with the words, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, what does Mary mean when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord? Simply this, she's making much of God. That's what she's doing. She's calling to her mind the greatness of God. To magnify means to enlarge. She was enlarging her vision, her understanding of God in her own mind. Through her meditation and through her words, she wanted to enlarge her vision of God. How big is your God? She used her mind. Now listen carefully. She used her mind. She used her knowledge of Scripture to not just think about God, but to think right thoughts about God. There's a difference. Okay. So she pulls from Scripture and she thinks the right thoughts about God. She's not giving her opinion here. She's not pulling out just what she likes. She's going through Scripture and enlarging her vision of God. She wanted to paint a verbal portrait of just how great God is. She wanted to think great thoughts about her great God. The goal of her thinking and the goal of her words was to call to her mind the greatness of God. Do you see the theme here? It's a great God. He's worthy of great thoughts. He's worthy of great effort. And let's not forget that she's about to embark upon a very difficult time of life for both her and Joseph. Her life from the moment that Gabriel appeared to her and delivered his announcement, her life, his life, and perhaps the lives of her parents and his parents, they would never be the same again. Now here's my point. She meditated on God before her trouble came. In other words, she got ahead of the curve, if you will. And so many times when trouble comes to our lives because we've not properly prepared ourselves, we've not followed the example of Mary, we've not thought these great thoughts about God, we're left scrambling and scurrying, and we find ourselves discouraged. Mary understood. Mary, she was such a wise young lady. She understood to some degree of what she was about to enter into, and she prepared herself. And how did she prepare herself? She meditated on the greatness of her God. So. In the good times and the bad, she needed to know how great God is. She would need to know, she would need to remember just how great and how powerful God is. And so what did she do before the troubles of life began? She began to worship God. Now listen carefully. And she worships Him not by the mindless repetition of phrases devoid of contemplation. No, she calls to mind His character and ties them directly to His activity amongst His creation. And I can't help but wonder if praise wasn't a way of life for her. She thought great thoughts about God, not mindless thoughts about God. She didn't repeat mindless cliches about God, but great truths about God. So she 
worships God for his mighty power, the power that was going to bring about the virgin birth. She honored him for his holiness. She highlighted his mercy. She praised his faithfulness. Look at verses 46 through 50 with me. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So we can start asking some questions. Why does Mary magnify the Lord? <coughs> Excuse me. Why does her soul, her, her, her spirit rejoice in God her Savior? Because God Almighty has taken note of her. A humble girl from a humble town, but not only has God taken note of her, he has reached down and elevated her to such a degree that she says that in her own words, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Not because of who she is, but because of what God has done through her. Why would they call her blessed? Because she was a part of God's promise in bringing salvation to the nations. And let's not recognize a very crucial point, and that is that Mary recognizes God as her Savior. God not only brought Christ to her, He has brought her to Christ. So she rejoices in God, her Savior. And as you begin to think through Mary's statement, it reveals so much about her. It reveals her spiritual condition. It reveals her character. It reveals her value system. It reveals her honesty. But the statement that she makes is also a call to self-examination for each one of us. And here the, here's, here's what we need to examine ourselves in relation to. Does your soul magnify the Lord? Are you even interested in magnifying the Lord? Is it one of your priorities? Is it your goal to make much of God, not only in your own eyes, but also in the eyes of others? And what we have here is an illustration of that Mary is praising God simply for who He is. Her soul rejoices in God, her Savior. Do you rejoice in God, your Savior? And there's so many implications of her word. And many of those implications, by the way, we have studied in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, I've said repeatedly in our study of Ephesians chapter 1, your salvation is so much more than the forgiveness of your sins. And what does Paul highlight in Ephesians 1? Well, for instance, God our Savior has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. God our Savior chose us before the foundation of the world. God our Savior predestined us for adoption. God our Savior has redeemed us. God our Savior has forgiven us. God our Savior has lavished, I love this, lavished the riches of His grace on us. God our Savior has sealed us with His Holy Spirit. God our Savior has made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God our Savior is going to show us for all eternity the immeasurable riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. That's what Mary's rejoicing over. She rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Because of all that it entails. All that He has done. And to rejoice in God, your Savior, is demonstrated not just by knowing the truth, but by applying the truth. And here's what I mean by that. Do you live in the freedom from the bondage of sin that Jesus has won for you? Have you ever seen a downtrodden prisoner when they got released? No, what do they do? They rejoice. That brings great joy. 
Do you live in the peace that Jesus has given to you? Peace brings joy. Do you live in the power of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has sent to you? Everything about us as believers is made new. And that brings joy. See, knowledge of the truth, if we have intellectual knowledge of the truth, if we know some facts, yes, we take some joy and we take some comfort just from knowing those facts. But I would argue that living out and experiencing the truth brings us a much greater joy. Right? So Mary rejoiced in God her Savior. Now think about this, folks. She didn't know the theology of Paul. I dare say every person in this room knows more theology in the New Testament sense, obviously, than she did. But that didn't keep her from rejoicing, did it? So therefore, because you know the theology, let that knowledge send your praise to new heights. Now, we have to deal with something here because... Perhaps there's somebody here who has this mindset. There are some people who rejoice in the gift, but not the giver. There are a lot of people who will gladly rejoice in God for all that He can give them. For instance, they will rejoice in the sentimentality of the Christmas season, but they don't rejoice in God as Savior. There's a segment of the church whose theology centers around what they believe God wants to give them and what they, they believe that God owes to them. And normally it's material wealth and they have little to no interest in spiritual wealth. <coughs> they believe that indeed he will give them everything they want if they will just what? Name it and claim it. There are those who will rejoice in God as Santa Claus if he meets all their demands. But Mary knew nothing and would have nothing of that heretical way of thinking. Her soul rejoiced in God, her Savior. Her, her entire song of praise is focused on the giver and not his gifts. So I ask you again, do you, are you rejoicing in God, your Savior? Better question, can you rejoice in God, your Savior? Is he your Savior? Remember Matthew's account, he makes it clear that Jesus was coming to save his people from what? From their sins. We look at Mary's statement further, it reveals her honesty. You say, well, how so? Because she had an honest evaluation of herself. And although she was pure in a sexual sense, she was grossly impure in a spiritual sense. Therefore, she understands that she needs a Savior. And she realized that God is going to work through her to bring salvation not only to her, but to the nations. So what about you? Can you say that your soul is magnifying the Lord and that your spirit is rejoicing in God as Savior? Now let's not brush this, this aside. If your soul is not magnifying the Lord, and if your soul is not rejoicing in God as your Savior, then... There are two things that may be possible or true of you this morning. First, let me speak to those who profess faith in Christ. 
If in your heart you have no desire to emulate both the attitude and the actions of Mary, then please, for the sake of your eternal soul, examine yourselves. With the aid of the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, seek the answer as to why your heart has grown so cold. What has become the priority in your life? What is it that has captured your heart and captured your affections? Beg the Holy Spirit to show you the source of your coldness and your apathy. And then when He does, and if you are a believer, He will, repent and do as Jesus counseled the church at Ephesus to do, to return to your first love. Second, consider the possibility that you're not a Christian at all. Perhaps you have been misled into thinking that the gospel was God's ticket to your riches. And you're more interested in the gift than you are in the giver of the gifts. Or, perhaps you're a cultural Christian. They're not hard to find, especially here in the Bible Belt. Cultural Christians are thicker than fleas on a hound dog around here. Here's a deadly saying. Here's two deadly sayings. And for whatever reason, I have heard these repeatedly over the past few weeks. And they are deadly sayings that will usher multitudes of people straight into hell. Say, wait a minute, man, this is Christmas. What's going on here? Christmas is about God's salvation. I would be derelict of my duty if I sent you out of here and say, hey, have a great Christmas, and you die on the way home and go to hell. Here's, here's two... Two, two, two damaging statements. And I've heard these repeatedly here lately. Here's the first one. They were raised right. They were raised right. The second one is, they know that's wrong. And do you know who those words are primarily spoken to or spoken about? People who were brought up in church. People who attend a church every Sunday. People who perhaps center the preaching of the gospel because they never cultivated the fear of the Lord. They never experienced His mercy as Mary describes in her song of praise. People who perhaps center the steady diet of moralistic preaching. Preaching that is powerless and devoid of the Holy Spirit and therefore lack the power to change them. Lack the power to bring spiritual life out of spiritual death. So therefore they were never born again. They have a quasi-Christian background, but that's all it is. It's a background. It's in the past. It has absolutely no impact on the present. They have no desire to magnify the Lord, and their soul could care less about rejoicing in God as Savior. Does any of that describe you? If so, consider the distinct possibility that God brought you to this place this morning for this reason. To expose you to what being a Christian really is and to expose you to the value system of all those who are truly in Christ. And if your exposure to the truth of Scripture this morning has opened your eyes, and now you see that you're not a genuine Christian, that perhaps you're just a cultural Christian, then know this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that Mary bore a child, and His name was Jesus, and He has come to save His people from their sins. Mary never mentions a baby. And if you came here this morning looking for the baby in the manger, you won't find him there. But Mary does mention a Savior, and you will find him here. 
So as a minister of the gospel, I beg you to flee the impending wrath of God, the impending judgment of God, the internal condemnation of God, and flee to Christ. You can see myself or Ben or Todd or Alex or Joey or Don, a multitude of people, and say, explain to me the way of the gospel fully. Don't put it off. And what God has done for her and what God has done for countless others, God will do for you. Mary says His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. You know, aren't you glad this is the way God works? God always exalts the humble. And the lesson Mary teaches us that God-fearing, humble people like her will be lifted up regardless of their station in life. You know, some people would look at Glades Village and say, why bother? Because God exalts the humble. God uses the humble. God saves the humble. Well, the second part of this is, not only does God exalt the humble, He also humbles the proud. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So what Mary begins to do at this point is she widens her circle, if you will. She moves from what God has done for her to praise him for what he's going to do for the world and for the nation of Israel. Another way that you could divide Mary's uh, song of praise up here would be with these two terms. One would be the mercy of God. The second would be the might of God. And if God is powerful enough to exalt the humble, then it follows that he is powerful enough to humble the proud. Again, verse 51, 52, he has shown strength with his arm. Notice he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but Mary is speaking in the past tense here. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. She's saying this before Jesus was even born. She was speaking as if it was as good as already done. You know why? Because it was. In other words, Jesus was going to come, and when he came, he was going to do what? He was going to upset the status quo. The world loves the rich. The world loves the powerful. The world loves the famous. The world loves the celebrity. And they look down on the rest of us little people. But to the rich, to the powerful, to the celebrity, to the famous, a young, humble girl in a humble town has a warning for us, for them. And I'm putting words in Mary's mouth to flesh it out a bit. Mary's warning may have gone something like this. Enjoy your 15 minutes of fame. Because there's coming a time when the mighty arm of God, the mighty arm of God who delivered the nation of Israel out of the death grip of Pharaoh, 
the mighty arm of God who delivered the giant Goliath into the hand of little David, the mighty arm of God who shut the mouth of the lions and gave Daniel a great night's sleep, the mighty arm of God who protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the flames of the fire, the mighty arm of God who empowered Samson to bring down the house on the partying Philistines. The same mighty God, the mighty arm of God, he will scatter the thoughts of the proud and he will bring down the mighty from their thrones. History proves it over and over again. Where is the great Greek empire? Where is the great Roman empire? Where is the great British empire? And one day people will say, what happened to the great American empire? God scatters the proud. He exalts the humble, and He humbles the proud. And I don't want to leave without highlighting the fact that in her words of warning to the unbeliever, there is great comfort for the believer. Believer, be comforted that the mighty arm of God is no longer against you. And all God's people said, what? Amen, hallelujah. No, he is actively at work using his mighty arm on your behalf. He is using his mighty arm to deliver you and I in ways that we are not even aware of. He is shielding you with his mighty arm. He is lifting you up and supporting you with his mighty arm. He encourages you with his mighty arm. He saves you with his mighty arm. I kept thinking of that verse. Is God's arm shortened so he cannot save? No. No, no. And I close with this. If God be for us, finish it, then who can be against us? Absolutely nobody. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would help us to meditate on Mary's words, not my words, Mary's words. Her Holy Spirit-inspired words. And may we, like Mary, be strengthened and encouraged by these words. And Father, when the battle intensifies, when the enemy ramps up its attacks against us, may we remember that the mighty arm of the Lord is for us. May we find great joy just in who you are. Father, we all know if we've lived any amount of time at all on this earth, if we look to others, if we look to experience, if we look to circumstances, that will all let us down. There's one thing that will never let us down. That's the mighty arm of God, the nature and the character of God. So may we focus May we use every bit of our intellectual capacities to know the scriptures, to meditate on the scriptures, and to verbalize the scriptures in our prayers. And Father, I'm grateful that at one time there was a babe in the manger. But I'm equally grateful that there is now a Savior who stands at the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for Grace Community Church this morning. He's interceding for all of his children. We thank you for that.
We ask these things in Christ's precious, holy, unmatchable name. Amen.